Throughout Numbers, we've seen this phrase over and over again that is so simple that you usually will skip right over it. And that is the phrase, the Lord said to Moses. And we read that a lot and we just kind of skip over it and keep going. Yeah, the Lord said to Moses, yeah, I know, okay, that's why we have the Bible. But that little phrase lends gravity and authority to the words that follow. It's like when the prophets would say, thus saith the Lord. When someone says that, you are then claiming to speak for God. And that is a very serious thing when someone says that God has spoken. But today, it is not uncommon to hear somebody say, God told me this or that with a rather flippant attitude. I was a youth pastor. I've heard a number of guys and gals say to one another, God told me we're going to get married. So if you don't go out with me this weekend, you're in disobedience to the Most High God. I'm, that, that did happen, believe it or not. And, uh, you know, I, w- I really want to break up, but I feel like but she says God told me that we have to stay together. So, you know, that's, that's a, maybe a misuse of that phrase. But I do believe very strongly that God does still speak to his people. I do believe that it is possible and, in fact, important and necessary to hear God's voice in your daily life. But this is, a, this is one of those dangerous doctrines that the Bible gives us that some people might conclude is better just to leave alone because of how people might abuse it. But we don't get, the, we don't get to make that decision. God already has. And I think we can learn some things from this section tonight. We're going to see the final preparations of the camp of the children of Israel and their final departure from Mount Sinai. We've been at Mount Sinai since the middle of the book of Exodus, and tonight we're going to watch them leave. And as we study how they moved through the wilderness, we ourselves are going to learn how we can hear and follow the voice of the Lord. So let's begin with the first nine verses of chapter 7. On the day when Moses had finished setting up the tabernacle and had anointed and consecrated it with all its furnishings and had anointed and consecrated the altar with all its utensils, the chiefs of Israel, heads of their father's houses, who were the chiefs of the tribes, who were over those who were listed, approached and brought their offerings before the Lord, six wagons and 12 oxen, a wagon for every two of the chiefs and for each one an ox. They brought them before the tabernacle. Then the Lord said to Moses, Accept these from them, that they may be used in the service of the tent of meeting, and give them to the Levites, to each man according to his service. So Moses took the wagons and the oxen and gave them to the Levites. Two wagons and four oxen he gave to the sons of Gershon, according to their service. And four wagons and eight oxen he gave to the sons of Merari, according to their service, under the direction of Ithamar, the son of Aaron the priest. But to the sons of Kohath he gave none, because they were charged with the service of the holy things that had to be carried on the shoulder. This chapter, you noticed hopefully in verse 1, takes us back one month to what we had been studying up to this point. Numbers chapter 1 begins with the second month of the second year since they left Egypt. But this one here says, On the day when Moses had finished setting up the tabernacle, which we know will happen on the first day of the first month of the second year. We know that from Exodus chapter 40, verse 17. So, Chapter 7, and we believe till chapter 9, it could be a little different, but it seems to be at least till 9, is out of order chronologically. And I want to make sure we all know that that shouldn't throw you as you read that. that. That is not an error in the Bible. That is not somebody trying to slip something past you. 
this is just the way that they told stories. And in fact, we still have a lot of stories that are out of order. Every TV show you've ever watched has flashbacks in it, right? And in fact, it can be more artful to have things out of chronological order. The Gospel of John has a lot of things that are out of order and several books of the Bible as well. So uh, don't let that throw you. We are now back to the day they had dedicated the tabernacle. And perhaps the reason they delayed what we're going to talk about here is because they wanted to explain the Levitical duties first, just prior to their departure. But in any case, when Moses dedicated the tabernacle, there were wagons that were offered to Moses, as well as oxen to pull those wagons. Two of them were given to the Gershonites. Now, these are the, the three clans of the tribe of Levi. We talked about this in our first study in Numbers. The Gershonites were the ones who were charged to carry the hangings and the coverings of the tabernacle. So that would be the walls of the courtyard, the coverings that went over the tabernacle itself. They were given two wagons and four oxen to help carry them. Four of those wagons, and therefore eight oxen, were given to the sons of Merari. Now, the Merarites were in charge with carrying the framework of the tabernacle. That's the bases and the boards and the pillars and all of that. So they had more to carry because, of course, it couldn't be folded and it would have been heavier. Now, the Kohathites, the sons of Kohath, were the other tribe, or the other clan, I should say, of the tribe of Levi. And they did not get wagons because they were carrying the Ark of the Covenant, the table of showbread, the, the golden lampstand, the incense altar, the bronze altar, and the bronze laver. And the Lord said, these things are so holy, you have to carry them. You don't get to put them on a cart, you have to carry them. Now, this is one of those sections that maybe you're not going to do your devotions on on a, on a morning, but it is significant, as I mentioned already, that later on we're going to see that David transports the Ark of the Covenant on a cart. And that's when Uzzah is going to reach out and touch the Ark of the Covenant and God's going to strike him dead. And that is deliberately calling back to what they were not supposed to do, which is the Ark of the Covenant was not to be carried on a cart. So it's in fact deeper than the fact that they were doing it the Philistine way. They were doing it exactly opposite the way God had told them to do it. So uh, that, there's really not a whole lot more to it than that. They had wagons that they were used to carry these things. Let's, let's read uh, verses 10 and 11, and then we'll pause for a quick moment. And the chiefs offered offerings for the dedication of the altar on the day it was anointed. That would be the bronze altar of sacrifice. And the chiefs offered their offerings before the altar. And the Lord said to Moses, they shall offer their offerings one chief each day for the dedication of the altar. Now, from here down to the end of verse 88, this is a very long chapter, uh, we see 12 days of dedication offerings coming from each of the tribes. And I'm not going to read all these uh, for time's sake, also because each paragraph is identical to the others. The only things that are different are the names of the tribe and the name of the head of that tribe. So we're just going to break down what it was, and then uh, we will skip down to verse 84. Uh, but it's just good to know that we're kind of, we're, we're still back in month one. We've, we've established the tabernacle. We've had the, maybe that first ceremony, but now we're having 12 days of sacrifices and offerings. So each one is going to offer these things. A silver plate. Now don't just think like a plate, like this would have been like a tray. They, this was, these things that they're offering are the implements that were used in the tabernacle to carry the, the sacrifices around, to move the incense in and out, to hold the showbread and things like that. So a silver plate, a silver basin, both of those things, the plate and the basin, were to be full of flour and oil that would be offered as a grain offering. 
Number three, a golden dish that was full of incense. So they were providing incense that could then be burned in the tabernacle. They were then to bring a bull, a ram, and a year-old male lamb for a burnt offering. Remember, a burnt offering is the one that was totally consumed. You didn't eat any of that. You just threw out the pieces that were unclean. So that would have been the offal and the entrails. Then they had to bring a male goat for a sin offering. And then two oxen, five rams, five goats, and five lambs for a peace offering. So what you see here, they're bringing in these things that are going to be kept and used, the incense and then the other implements. And they're also bringing everything that is necessary for each tribe to offer a grain offering, a burnt offering, a sin offering, and a peace offering. The only one of the five that is not included is the guilt offering. And we've discussed this actually not too long ago, that a guilt offering was when you also had to pay a, a, an extra recompense for a crime you had inf- incurred. So if you stole from somebody or if you accidentally forgot to pay what you owed to someone. So there's no guilt offering that's being represented. Those were very much occasional. Um, but these are the things that were probably used in the holy place or in the courtyard of the tabernacle. Every one of these tribes, I'm not going to read their names, but back in Numbers chapter 2, where we talked about where all the different tribes would camp around the tabernacle, and we listed their names, it's the same 12 men. So we are still seeing the uh, Nashon, who is the forefather of David, and we are still seeing the grandfather of Joshua as well. So I'm going to skip down now to verse 84, because it really is just a very long list and I mean, it was important for them because they would, they would be able to know that their tribe and their ancestor was represented in establishing this covenant. So it's not insignificant, although it is a little tedious to read. So we're going to pick up at verse 84. This was the dedication offering for the altar on the day when it was anointed from the chiefs of Israel, 12 silver plates, 12 silver basins, 12 golden dishes, each silver plate weighing 130 shekels and each basin 70. All the silver of the vessels, 2,400 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. So perhaps these would have been placed into a treasury in order to handle expenses for the tabernacle. The 12 golden dishes full of incense, weighing 10 shekels apiece, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. All the gold of the dishes being 120 shekels. All the cattle for the burnt offering, 12 bulls, 12 rams, 12 male lambs a year old with their grain offering, which was, remember, in the silver plate and silver basin. 12 male goats for a sin offering, and all the cattle for the sacrifice of peace offerings, 24 bulls, the rams, 60, the male goats, 60, the male lambs a year old, 60. This was the dedication offering for the altar when it was anointed. So all of this is to inaugurate tabernacle worship, to bring in all the implements that they would need, to allow the priests to do a bunch of these up front so that they could get used to what an offering would have been like. And also, you can see each tribe, in a, in a way, coming and bowing the knee to the Lord, declaring their tribal loyalty, that we are going to keep the Lord's commandments. And up through chapter 10, that is what we see, that Israel is doing everything that God has told them to do. Now we get to verse 89. And when Moses went into the tent of meeting to speak with the Lord, he heard the voice speaking to him from above the mercy seat, that was on the Ark of the Testimony from between the two cherubim, and it spoke to him. Moses enters here the tent of meeting. It's interesting. You'll remember that before there was a tent of meeting that was outside the camp while they were still at Mount Sinai prior to the building of the tabernacle. But in order to avoid confusion, I will let you know, when the tabernacle was built, 
it then took on the name the Tent of Meeting because it functioned like the other one did, although it was very different because that had confused me in the past. So just to clear that up. But Moses goes into the holy place to speak to the Lord. It is very unlikely that he went into the Holy of Holies. But if anybody could, it probably would have been Moses who was able to go in. Uh, but he can hear the voice coming from above the mercy seat. Remember, the mercy seat was not a chair. The mercy seat was the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. And there were the two golden cherubim that had been carved on it. Those things did not look like those fat little babies that you see painted. A cherub was something more like a griffin. It was like a mishmash of animals, like a winged lion and that kind of thing. But that's where the voice of the Lord came from. God spoke to him. And that's that phrase I mentioned, that this is authoritative word from God. It is legitimate revelation. And so as we now take some time to look at this application here, our God, the true and living God, may be distinguished from the false gods because he is a communicating God. Our Lord speaks to us. Both of the in the beginning passages in your Bible describe the speaking of God. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, the Lord said, let there be light. He says a lot of things in that first chapter, but other than the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters, we see God speak in the beginning. Then in John chapter 1, verse 1, he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That, of course, is a reference to Jesus Christ. But one of the titles that is given to Jesus is the Word of God, with a capital W, which is significant, that our God defines himself as a speaking God, a communicating God. The psalmist would say, in Psalm 115, verses 4 and 5, The idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, and eyes but do not see. The inverse implication, of course, being our God can speak. Our God can see. We don't have an idol of him because who can represent him? But he's able to do all that is necessary. You remember how Elijah mocked the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel because they're crying out to Baal and they're, they're wailing and crying out and cutting themselves. And Elijah says, I don't think you're yelling loud enough. Baal can't hear you. Maybe he's on vacation. Maybe he's in the bathroom. Go back and read your Bible. That's what he says. That's a pretty brave thing for him to say, wasn't it? But then he just stands up and says, Lord, would you just show the people who you are? And then fire comes down from heaven, right? The Lord hears. The Lord speaks. We can only know anything about God because he has revealed himself to us. Now, the atheists are on to something when they say, how can you expect to know anything about God even if he is real? It's like, I'm with you. But God has spoken to us. And then you, they might say something like, well, why would God speak to us? Like, you know, you sound an awful lot like David in Psalm chapter 8 when he said, what is man that you're mindful of him? But we have the revelation of God. He revealed himself through the prophets. He revealed himself, of course, in his word, the Bible, and ultimately through Jesus Christ, who is the consummate, ultimate revelation of who God is to the point where Jesus can say, he who has seen me has seen the Father. And the Holy Spirit of God who dwells among us and in us is called the Spirit of Jesus Christ. But I want to focus for a moment here. We know that God is a speaking God. And because tonight we're talking about hearing the voice of the Lord, following the Lord as he leads us through life, we hear that and we go, okay, good. I want to hear God's voice. I'm glad you do. So do I. My dad used to ask boys that would come to 
call upon my younger sisters, his favorite question to ask them was, do you know the voice of the Lord? Is there an intimidating question to be asked by a pastor when you're coming to see his daughter? It's like, man, the last guy was just cleaning his gun. This guy's asking me about God. (laughs) However, it is important. But here's something we need to know. Before we get to hearing the voice of the Lord to you for your moment, I want to focus and emphasize the written word of God, which you're holding in your laps right now. The written word. 2 Timothy 3, 16-17 says, All scripture is breathed out by God. That's that word inspired. He breathed into it. Breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete. You could even translate that perfect. Equipped for every good work. There are some who say things like, the Bible contains the word of God. Like it's in there, but you know, not all of it. There's some people that say, yeah, I believe God spoke to people and then they wrote it down. So the words themselves are a record of the word of God, but it itself is not the word of God. I absolutely abominate both of those views. The Bible is the word of God in its entirety. Hebrews 4 verse 12 says, The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, cutting to the division of soul and spirit and bones and marrow. We're Christians in here, most of us. You know that. You've opened up your Bible and just been wrecked before, haven't you? It's like, this is a book. How does it know what I'm going through? I read a lot of books, and there's nothing like this here. Now, and the big thing now is like when people say, well, the Bible, it's a, it's a book of myths. I mean, they're good. They're good stories. They teach us a lot of things, but they don't have to be true. I like what C.S. Lewis said. He said, I have made a profession out of studying myths, and I can tell you that the Bible is not a myth. And he meant that in the technical sense. Like, this genre of literature is not mythological literature. And in fact, Peter will say, says, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we declared to you the truth about God. Give the apostles some credit. They knew what myths were, and they explicitly said, this is not that. 2 Peter 1.21 says, Scripture came about when men of God were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We believe in dual authorship of the Bible. Yes, Moses wrote this down, but the Holy Spirit was superintending every word that he put there. So, if you want to hear the voice of God, you got to start here. And the many people who are very eager and excited and are of a spiritual disposition really want to hear God's voice to them, but they don't want to be slowed down and delayed by this giant book that God left us. But just think about that for a minute. God could have given us anything, and he gave us a book. Thank you, Lord, because we can read it, and we can look at it, we can study it, and we can cross-reference it. And you're never going to exhaust this book. You're never going to come to the end of it. I just finished reading the Bible again. I read it in the New Living Translation this time. I thought that would be different. I really thoroughly enjoyed that. And I'm picking up on stuff that I'd never picked up on before. Even in books that I knew really well, books that I've taught through before, some of my favorite passages, and I'm like, that's what that is about. I discovered, at least for myself, like 11 new psalms that talk about the resurrection. I'm sure there's other, some other Christian egghead that's already figured that out. But it's like, hey, man, this is new to me. And you're going to keep on digging and keep on finding it. Even when I was in seminary, these men that are professional Bible students, 
They don't even have the, you know, I, don't, I mean this not as an insulting, but they don't even have the distraction of ministry. All they do is read the Bible. And they would say things, and I'd say, wait, that can't be right, because it says over here in Micah, whatever. And they go, you know, I don't know that I've ever come across that verse before. And I'm like, you're the guy with letters after your name, man. And I'm not even insulting him. I'm just saying the word of God is so deep and so wide that no man can exhaust it. So don't despise it when you talk about wanting to hear what God has to say about something. You've got to learn what God has already said because he's not going to contradict himself. And people who say things like, well, didn't God contradict himself from Old Testament to New Testament? No. He fulfilled all the things he already said. That, you, know, you don't watch a movie and say, the end of this movie really contradicts the beginning of this movie. It's like, no, you watched the story to the end. Like, you saw where it was going. It was leading somewhere. Right? So, well, this character is way different than he was at the beginning of this movie. Yeah. <laughs> That's what happens. That's what happens when the story unfolds. God's not going to contradict himself. Well, the Lord told me it was okay for me to get high every weekend. No, he didn't. Well, I will tell you, let me tell you the story. He's like, no, he wouldn't say that because God has already said not to be drunk with wine, not to deal in what he says, pharmakia, not to do anything that's going to hinder your sobriety. To be always able to make a good decision in the moment. All these false religions that say, an angel spoke to me. Joseph Smith, there's an angel that came to me and said there was a new testament of Jesus Christ, a new New Testament. But Paul said in Galatians that even if an angel from heaven tells you something different than what I told you, that angel's going to hell too. Islam, same thing. In fact, that story's remarkable because Muhammad thought he had encountered a demon the first time. And his wife convinced him, no, 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 go back, because maybe that demon will teach you something. And did he ever? God's not going to contradict himself. There is so much wisdom in that Bible in your hands that can be gained that is probably going to answer most of your questions. When people ask me advice. Some of you all know this. When you ask me advice or counseling situation, the first thing I'll do is I'll start thinking in my mind, what scriptures speak to this? And sometimes it's a very short conversation. God already answered that question. Goes, oh, I, I didn't realize that. And that's okay. That's my job is to help you with that. But you got to know it. At the very least, it might not tell you exactly what to do in your situation, but it will set boundaries around the possibilities of what you might do next. Like, God, which way do I go? And the Lord might say in his Bible, I'm, it doesn't tell you which way to go, but it tells you that these three are definitely out. <laughs> you can start with that, right? That's not a bad way to go. And even after you learn to hear the voice of the Lord well, and God speaks to you like Elisha, Elisha will say that he was more surprised when God didn't speak to him than when he did. But all those great men and women were devout lovers of God's word. If you meet somebody that says, I love it when God speaks to me, but they have no time for the Bible, watch out for that person. People who know God's voice love God's voice even when it's the written voice. So rely upon the scripture. Those that have already heard from God, like Moses, and written it down. Start there. If you want to know what God's voice is telling you, start with the scripture. Because God may have something to say that builds upon that, but he's never going to go beyond that. Let's go on now to chapter 8. First four verses here. Seem to, seem to kind of come out of nowhere, but... 
That's, that's okay. Now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and say to him, When you set up the lamps, the seven lamps shall give light in front of the lampstand. And Aaron did so. He set up its lamps in front of the lampstand as the Lord commanded Moses. And this was the workmanship of the lampstand, hammered work of gold. From its base to its flowers, it was hammered work. According to the pattern that the Lord had shown Moses, so he made the lampstand. So perhaps as we're talking about Moses going into the holy place and he sees, hears God's voice from the, the tabernacle for the first time, maybe the first thing God tells him is, all right, Moses, you set up the lampstand wrong. <laughs> I want you to get it right. Go fix the lampstand. He gives him instructions. Exodus 25, verses 31 through 40, gave us the design of the golden lampstand, which would have been in the left-hand side as you walked into the holy place. On the other side was the table of showbread, or the bread of the presence, it was called. There were to be 12 loaves in two stacks of six that had frankincense on top of them. And this is also where they kept wine for drink offerings and things like that. And the Lord says, I want the lamps on my lampstand to always be shining so that it is upon that table. And this lampstand symbolized various things. It symbolized the tree of life. There's a lot of Garden, Garden of Eden metaf uh, imagery in the tabernacle. It symbolized the pillar of fire because the tabernacle can also be viewed as a depiction of the exodus out of Egypt. It represents the stars in the sky as a picture of, of creation, that you've got the, the earth and you've got the sky and space and you've got God's heaven. And it also represents the Holy Spirit. Zechariah chapter 4, he has the picture of the lampstand and the two olive trees feeding oil continually to this lampstand. Do you remember that? And that's where you get that famous verse, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit says the Lord. Then in Revelation chapter 4, you see John in heaven in the divine, actual holy place. And he says he saw the seven flames or the seven lamps, which is the sevenfold spirit of God. And that's a mysterious thing that I don't know if I fully understand that the Holy Spirit is called the sevenfold spirit of God. And this lampstand with seven lamps was to represent God's active presence on the earth. We've discussed all this before. I think this may be connected to the blessing that Aaron would give to the people where he would say, may his face shine upon you. And the 12 loaves, of course, represented the 12 tribes of Israel. And maybe the Lord is saying, make sure my face is always shining on the 12 tribes of Israel. Verse 5. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the Levites from among the people of Israel and cleanse them. Thus you shall do to them to cleanse them. Sprinkle the water of purification upon them, and let them go with a razor over all their body, and wash their clothes and cleanse themselves. Then let them take a bull from the herd and its grain offering of fine flour mixed with oil. And you shall take another bull from the herd for a sin offering. And you shall bring the Levites before the tent of meeting and assemble the whole congregation of the people of Israel. When you bring the Levites before the Lord, the people of Israel shall lay their hands on the Levites. Whenever laying on of hands comes from. And Aaron shall offer the Levites before the Lord as a wave offering from the people of Israel that they may do the service of the Lord. Then the Levites shall lay their hands on the heads of the bulls and you shall offer the one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering to the Lord to make atonement for the Levites." And you shall set the Levites before Aaron and his sons and shall offer them as a wave offering to the Lord. Thus you shall separate, separate the Levites from among the people of Israel and the Levites shall be mine. 
And after that, the Levites shall go in to serve at the tent of meeting when you have cleansed them and offered them as a wave offering. For they are wholly given to me from among the people of Israel instead of all who open the womb. We talked about this. The firstborn of all the people of Israel, I have taken them for myself. For all the firstborn among the people of Israel are mine, both of man and of beast. On the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I consecrated them for myself, and I have taken the Levites instead of all the firstborn among the people of Israel. And I have given the Levites as a gift to Aaron and his sons from among the people of Israel to do the service for the people of Israel at the tent of meeting and to make atonement for the people of Israel, that there may be no plague among the people of Israel when the people of Israel come near the sanctuary. There's that dangerous holiness we've been talking about. Thus did Moses and Aaron, verse 20, and all the congregation of the people of Israel to the Levites. According to all that the Lord commanded Moses concerning the Levites, the people of Israel did to them. And the Levites purified themselves from sin and washed their clothes. And Aaron offered them as a wave offering before the Lord. And Aaron made atonement for them to cleanse them. And after that, the Levites went in to do their service in the tent of meeting before Aaron and his sons. As the Lord had commanded Moses concerning the Levites, so they did to them. Can you notice how in this time and in this culture, repetition was very much valued in its literature? We have the opposite of that. Uh, Hemingway and, and Faulkner and uh, Fitzgerald and several others established a very lean style for English, especially for American literature. Hebrew did not have that hang up. <laughs> they liked to say it over and over again. So it's good to read it all, even if it does seem like they're repeating themselves quite a bit. This is the ordination ceremony for the Levites. The Levites had three jobs, you remember. They were to guard the sanctuary. They had guard duty. They were to carry all of the stuff for the tabernacle. And then they were to serve in the sanctuary and do all the jobs that the priests were not to do. And here's how the ceremony went. They were to be sprinkled with water of purification. This is probably from the bronze laver where the priests were to wash, although it doesn't say that. They were to shave their whole bodies. That's top to bottom. That's hair, that's eyebrows, that's beard, that's everything. And so as the water of purification was coming over them, that is probably when they would shave themselves. And they were to wash their clothes. That's a very symbolic thing they did in the Bible is they would wash their clothes. So it's quite a sight to see, wouldn't it? All these guys that are now bald without eyebrows, these guys that would have had these big giant beards that are now shaved off because you've been consecrated unto the Lord. Then they were to collectively, so not each person, but as a group, they were to offer two bulls, a burnt offering and a sin offering. Now remember, the burnt offering was almost always, as far as I can tell, the burnt offering was offered with a grain offering. So that's why they include that there. After they offer their two bulls, all the people, and perhaps this was like the representatives of the people, meaning the 12 chiefs, that seems likely, but there were a lot of Levites, so maybe everybody had to grab one and lay hands on them. They were to lay hands on them, and then the Levites would lay their hands on the bulls. And remember, this was to symbolize transference, right? That our sin is going upon this bull. And then Aaron, it says, offered them as a wave offering. A wave offering is when you would sacrifice a peace offering to the Lord. Part of the ceremony is that you were to eat some of the meat. And so the portion that was to be eaten, Aaron would wave it before the Lord. It was called a wave offering. So why is he saying that the Levites would be a wave offering? Because they are obviously not themselves going to be cut apart and, and you know, put on the altar. But these bulls that represented them were sacrificed. And the idea is this is the dedicated portion given to the priests. 
These Levites are the dedicated portion of this sacrifice that is now given over to the tabernacle. This may well be where Paul, in Romans 12, verse 1, gets his concept of a living sacrifice, devoted wholly unto the Lord. So from this moment on, we now have Moses as the prophet, we have Aaron and his sons as the priests, and we have Levites. We've been talking about them and building up to them. Now we have them. Verse 23, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, This applies to the Levites. From 25 years old and upward, they shall come to do duty in the service of the tent of meeting. And from the age of 50 years, they shall withdraw from the duty of the service and, keep, and serve no more. They minister to their brothers in the tent of meeting by keeping guard, but they shall do no service. Thus you shall do to the Levites in assigning their duties. A lot of this section is about what the Levites were to do. So here we have the span of service for a Levite. So this is to be adults, adult men in the prime of their lives. But in chapter 4, verse 3, you might remember this, they took a census of the Levites and they counted them from age 30 through age 50, not 25 through 50. Later on, David and I believe Hezekiah, they're going to establish Levites again, and they're going to establish them from ages 20 through 50. And there's been various things put out there. It could be that the 30 through 50, what we were talking about then, was only for who got to carry the loads, who got to load the carts and things. Here it seems to be that 25 through 50 was for service in the sanctuary. And quite frankly, a lot of things changed when they were no longer carrying the tabernacle and they had the, the static temple. So that could be why it went from 20 through 50. We simply don't know. But I do want to call these things out in case you notice them in your own reading. There's a million explanations that we might just not know about, so it's best just to let it go and notice the difference. What is important to know is that God has established order and leadership among his people, not just in the Old Testament, but in the church as well. Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 12, says the Lord gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints, that's you guys, for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. God established leadership in the church. Maturity, meaning spiritual maturity, and longevity and authority matter in the church. And we should respect that, especially for us in Calvary Chapel, which is a, has a pretty casual approach to things. We're casual in our style, because that's neither here nor there. But in terms of those who God has raised up as authority figures in his church, we ought to take that very seriously. Now, I and the home fellowship leaders or the ministry team leaders, the elders, a lot of overlap between those groups, but we're to be servant leaders, but we talked about this already, we're to be servant followers too. And as we get to now talking about trying to find God's will, we talked about the scriptures. When you're trying to discern God's will, trying to find out what God is saying, here's our second thing. Start with the Bible and then go talk to someone in the church that can help you. Before you even sit down and say, what is God saying to me? Go to godly people in the church and ask them. Somebody who already knows God's voice is the best person to teach you what God's voice sounds like. Somebody who already hears from God, and, and not just that they're very religious, but that you can tell there's a spiritual maturity about them. Go talk to that guy. Go talk to that girl and say, here's what I'm thinking. What, what do you think? Am I hearing from God? Am I not? How do you hear the voice of the Lord? What's it like for you? Find out. 
There are, there are great repositories of practical and spiritual wisdom in this room. And they're not going to steer you astray. There are people here who know what it looks and feels like when someone is rushing ahead of God's timing. There are people in here who knows when you're, what it looks like when someone is holding back and going slow and needs to get their rear in gear. And they also can tell you when you're right on the money and need to stop freaking out about it. You're doing just fine. I encourage those of you who are learning what God's voice sounds like or trying to figure out, am I hearing from God or am I not? Make friends with somebody who is more godly than you. Now that can be very disappointing because you can get real excited in, in either your spiritual or your actual youth and say, this is what I think. And then the person's going to go, I just don't know about that. No, 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 that's not from the Lord. That's, you know, you just had too much pizza to dinner last night and, you know, that's, that's just indigestion. It's not a burning in your bosom. That's, you know. And that can be really deflating. I've been there before. I'm rather enthusiastic in my personality. You may have noticed that if you've been around here a while. I used to be even more so. I thought everything was a sign from God. Everything was, God has said, let's do it. And I had a lot of people tell me, Tyler, I love how excited you are, but let's just slow down. I'm like, we can't slow down. What if the rapture happens tomorrow? We've got to do this today. And I'm very grateful for good, godly people that did not put a pin in the balloon of my joy, but taught me to slow down. And that you can honor the Lord and do it patiently and wisely, but without, without trying to pour cold water on the fire that was burning in me. People like that are invaluable. And we have people like that at this church. If, you're, if you think God has told you to do something, and you can't find anything in the Bible that says you can't, but every godly man and woman you know is telling you it's a terrible idea, you probably should just stop. Church exists for a reason. God's given us people. Oh, they're not as spiritual as I am. Don't be too sure. People will surprise you. I know to my own shame that there have been some people that I have just written off. Like, all right, what is this guy even doing here? And then you get to know him and like, I ought to be like wiping this guy's boots. And in the kingdom of heaven, I probably will be. But I wrote him off because, I don't know, he wasn't well-spoken or whatever it is. I hope to, that I've gotten better over the years, but rely on godly leadership and godly people. I'll say this, and I, I can say this without pride because I know it's not from me. The Lord gives the leaders in his church, pastors like myself and others, he gives me special insight into situations as your shepherd and as your leader. Very often you'll be telling me what you're thinking or what you're talking to Steve or Zach or someone like that, and, and God will just drop something on us. I was told this was going to happen before I came down to go plant a church. I'll say, God is going to work with you, and the Spirit is going to speak to you in ways that are different and new than you ever have before, and they were absolutely right. Trust the shepherds that God has put over you. Chapter 9. And the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the first month of the second year. So again, we're still one month back. After they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Let the people of Israel keep the Passover at its appointed time. On the fourteenth day of this month at twilight, you shall keep it at its appointed time. According to all its statutes and all its rules, you shall keep it. So Moses told the people of Israel that they should keep the Passover. And they kept the Passover in the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month, at twilight. In the wilderness of Sinai, according to all that the Lord commanded Moses, so the people of Israel did. We're still in the first month. 
at least in, for this section, and it's time to keep Passover. And this is the 14th day of the first month, so that gives us just enough time to have 12 days of bringing offerings to the tabernacle, plus a day for dedication, etc. And it's the 14th day, it's time for Passover. We talked about the rules of Passover extensively when we went through Exodus chapter 12. That's the night where the firstborn were killed and they put the blood on the doors in, in Egypt. You know the story. It's, it is what inspires the, the symbolism of the communion table, which we're going to celebrate tonight. And it's really unfortunate that in the Old Testament, Passover is only going to be celebrated sporadically. And the mark of a real leader of God in the Old Testament is somebody that brings the people back to celebrate Passover again. Joshua is going to do this upon entrance in the Promised Land. Apparently, the people were so bitter during the 40 years that they weren't keeping Passover. Josiah is going to bring back Passover again as the king. It's an important thing. Verse 6. And there were certain men who were unclean through touching a dead body so that they could not keep the Passover on that day. And they came before Moses and Aaron on that day. And those men said to him, we are unclean through touching a dead body. Why are we kept from bringing the Lord's offering at its appointed time among the people of Israel? They're still getting used to this whole unclean thing. And Moses said to them, wait that I may hear what the Lord will command concerning you. It's a great answer. Pastor, leader, anybody ever says, let me wait and pray on that. Don't write them off. It's a good thing to do. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel saying, If any one of you or of your descendants is unclean through touching a dead body or is on a long journey, he shall keep the Passover to the Lord. In the second month, on the 14th day at twilight, they shall keep it. That's one month later. They shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall leave none of it until the morning, nor break any of its bones. According to the, all the statute for the Passover, they shall keep it. Same rules as usual, just on a different date. But if anyone who is clean and is not on a journey fails to keep the Passover, that person shall be cut off from his people because he did not bring the Lord's offering at its appointed time. That man shall bear his sin. And if a stranger sojourns among you and would keep the Passover to the Lord... According to the statute of the Passover and according to its rule, so shall he do. You shall have one statute, both for the sojourner and for the native. So there were some people that were unclean and were unable to have Passover. They'd had a funeral or something like that that day. And so they were unclean and couldn't keep it. So Moses goes and consults God. It's the first time something like this had happened. And so God says there will be a second Passover a month later for those who missed it. But God emphasizes that you don't get to skip Passover. You don't get to say, well, there's another one coming up in a month. He goes, no, if you can, you better do it. The Bible says, he who knows what is good and doesn't do it, to him it is sin. On pain of being cut off, that would be exiled from your people. And he says that even the sojourners could participate in it. And this was God's plan all along. We talked about this a lot in Exodus, that there were a lot of people that came out of Egypt who were not Hebrews, that wanted to leave Egypt and go with them. And this is what God wanted. So he's saying, if somebody in your, your town who's not, uh, not Jewish wants to keep Passover, let them do it. How, how much of a contrast is that to the, the segregation that the Pharisees and Sadducees practiced by the time we get to Jesus' day? And do you notice how he said that when they eat this lamb, they are not to break any of its bones? John 19.36, when Jesus was hanging on the cross, it was coming on the Sabbath day. And they said, we can't let the dead bodies be hanging up on the Sabbath day. You know, they want to do the right thing. 
So, <laughs> but they say, let's break the legs of the, of the guys because on the cross, the way you would die is you would, you would suffocate. If you couldn't push yourself up, your lungs would collapse inside of your rib cage. So if you break the legs, they can't push themselves up off that middle nail and they would suffocate. Well, Jesus, because of the beating he had already received at the hands of uh, Pontius Pilate, had already died. So they didn't break his legs. And John says, this is to fulfill what the scripture says, none of my bones were broken. Psalm 34 verse 20 mentions this also, that the Passover lamb that was to take away sin could not have its bones broken. And Jesus, our Passover lamb, had none of his broken bones broken either. Isn't that cool? Let's keep going. Verse 15. On the day that the tabernacle was set up, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony. And at evening it was over the tabernacle like the appearance of fire until morning. So it was always. The cloud covered it by day and the appearance of fire by night. And whenever the cloud lifted from over the tent, after that the people of Israel set out. And in the place where the cloud settled down, there the people of Israel camped. At the command of the Lord, the people of Israel set out. And at the command of the Lord, they camped. As long as the cloud rested over the tabernacle, they remained in camp. Even when the cloud continued over the tabernacle many days, the people of Israel kept the charge of the Lord and did not set out. Sometimes the cloud was a few days over the tabernacle, and according to the command of the Lord, they remained in camp. Then according to the command of the Lord, they set out. Are you hearing that according to the command of the Lord repetition? It's important. Sometimes the cloud remained from evening until morning, and when the cloud lifted in the morning, they set out. Or if it continued for a day and a night, while the cloud lifted, they set out. Whether it was two days or a month or a longer time that the cloud continued over the tabernacle abiding there, the people of Israel remained in camp and did not set out. But when it lifted, they set out. At the command of the Lord, they camped. And at the command of the Lord, they set out. They kept the charge of the Lord at the command of the Lord by Moses. So here is an overarching description of how they moved through the wilderness. They were following what is called the Shekinah glory of the Lord this pillar of cloud and fire. It would rest over the Holy of Holies. So, I mean, you got to add that to your picture of the children of Israel in the wilderness. There wasn't just a camp. There was that persistent 40-year-long pillar of cloud and fire until it was time to move, and it would rise up, and presumably they would follow it. Maybe it was in the sky. Maybe they would wait for it to descend again. It doesn't matter how far it went or how long it rested down. There's a great lesson in that, by the way. Just because you've been somewhere for a long time doesn't mean God can't say, all right, we're done, time to go. Now Moses consulting God in the tabernacle demonstrates the lesson that we need to gain from this. That when when the Spirit moved, they followed the cloud. Wherever the glory of the Lord went, that's where they went. They didn't do anything unless God told them to do it. Moses was not about to make a determination for those who were unclean on Passover without first going and consulting the Lord. I said at the beginning that God is a speaking and communicating God. But we believe, we know to be true, that God not only has spoken in His Word, but continues to speak to the church by His Holy Spirit. Jesus said Himself in John 16, 13, at the Last Supper, When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He says the Holy Spirit's going to come. 
He's going to guide you in all truth. He's going to deliver what my words are for you. He's even going to reveal the future to you. You do not get to say that that was just for the apostles unless you are planning to take the entire Last Supper and give that to the apostles, which includes such things like, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. I go to prepare a place for you. Was that just for the apostles? Of course not. So you don't get to pick and choose. The Spirit leads us into all truth. You read the book of Acts. It exemplifies a partnership between the church and the Spirit. I've talked about this a lot. The Holy Spirit is a very active character in the book of Acts. He has a speaking part. Maybe you've been in a play and you didn't have a speaking role. Your job was just to kind of walk around and be in the background. Not the Holy Spirit. In Acts 13, verse 2, he said to the elders at Antioch, Separate unto me Saul and Barnabas for the work to which I've called them. In Acts 15, 28, at the Council of Jerusalem, James pens this letter to the churches and says, It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and us to lay on you no further burden. In Acts 16, Paul's on his missionary journey. He tries to go into Bithynia. The Spirit won't let him. Tries to go north. Tries to go into Asia. The Spirit won't let him. So they go to Troas, and he gets a vision of a Macedonian man, and that's where they go. There was a partnership. 1 Corinthians 14 talks about at their, at their meetings in the early church, there was a posture of sitting and waiting upon the Lord to speak to them, even through prophecy and visions and dreams and teachings and exhortations. So not only has God spoken, he continues to speak. Therefore, Moses' privilege of hearing directly from God is available to all of God's people. Joel prophesied that in Joel 2.28, right? In the last days, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and they shall prophesy. This special privilege that was reserved for guys like Moses and Elijah and Joel and Micah and Malachi is going to be for all of my people. All of the abuses of this doctrine in the world do not nullify the truth of what God has stated clearly. Just because somebody comes in and says, the Lord said unto me, and he didn't say any such thing, and they're using it to beat you over the head, that does not change the fact that God does, in fact, speak to his people. Lots of people abuse preaching, too, but nobody's advocating we throw out preaching. So, okay, we're trying to hear the voice of the Lord. We've consulted our Bibles. We've talked to godly people in the church. How do we actually hear God's voice? I'm going to give you five things if you're taking notes. Number one is prayer. If you're trying to hear God's voice on something, you need to pray, 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 fast, and pray. If you say, I want to hear God's voice, but you can't be bothered to spend more than a minute or two praying, you need to reevaluate your priorities. Speak to God. Sit and wait in the presence of God. Do you know what it means in the Hebrew when it says, wait on the Lord? Wait on the Lord. Like you wait in a line at the DMV. Or you wait for your wife to come down and get ready to go. <laughs> it's a joke. You can laugh. It's okay. Wait on the Lord. That means sit and wait. Well, God, he, it's been 15 minutes and God ain't said nothing yet. Wait. Wait. Pray and wait. And if you've prayed up and, the, and like your deadline comes... And you do your best, trust that God's going to be with you. Or that the situation will totally change and resolve itself. There was a situation not long ago. Someone came up on a Sunday morning. They were really concerned about something. We didn't know what to do. And I said, how about this? Let's pray that God just sorts it out. 
And if it doesn't, then you come back and we'll talk next week and figure out what to do. And we prayed and God just sorted it out. So pray. Sometimes God will just remove the decision from you. Number two, impressions of the heart. Very often, especially in prayer, when you're asking God for something, you'll feel like something is just being pressed on your heart. You have a certainty about something that you are questioning about. God, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? And all of a sudden you go, I really feel like this is what I need to do. I don't even know what I wanted, and this is what I want now. I wasn't sure which was the way to go, and now I know that that's not right. Frequently, these things feel like they're coming from outside of you. It's like, this wasn't really what I want, but this is what I know I need to do. Learn to listen for these. Test them to see if they're from the Lord. I've had a lot of people tell me they have peace about something that they should not have peace about. It's like, that, you shouldn't be at peace about that. You shouldn't be at peace about moving in with your girlfriend. Because God is not at peace with you because of that. But you will get that. You'll have those impressions from the Lord. And you'll learn to recognize them. Number three, direct revelations from the Lord. God describes these. These include things like dreams, visions, signs, words of knowledge from somebody, prophetic utterances. We absolutely believe in these things. And there are all kinds of scoundrels and hucksters that want to misuse these things. But the Bible also commands you, do not despise prophecies. So don't. Sometimes God will just tell you. I knew it was time for us to start planning a church, like actively pursuing it through a dream God gave me. Number four, circumstances. This is a lesser one. This is the one you want to maybe evaluate last. Very often, though, God will just pave the pathway forward, and that's your answer. And you shouldn't be afraid to walk through it. People ask me all the time, why Alabama? Why did you come to Trustville to plant a church? And to make a very long story short, it was the first door we knocked on, and it was open. So it's like, it's not going to really get much better than this. So God, we're going to go. Stop us if we're doing the wrong thing. <laughs> and he didn't. Don't overthink your obedience. Sometimes it's obvious what you need to do, and it's so obvious you're afraid that you're missing something. Or sometimes people will say, I don't want to be pastor because I really want to. Like, what are you talking about? Well, everybody I know said, I didn't want to be a pastor, but God made me one. But I really want to be a pastor, so there must be something wrong with me. Not at all. The Bible says, he who desires the office of an elder desires a good thing. It's okay to want to. Sometimes God works through your want to, as long as it's not a bad thing. God works through open hearts and open doors. And number five, steps of faith. You've got to just be willing to step out of the boat and try to walk on the water sometimes. Most of the time, when you're trying to hear God's voice, you'll not know for certain. As you grow in the Lord, you'll grow more and more certain that God has said something. But listen, if what you're talking about is not sinful, don't worry about it. I don't know if God wants me to go on this missions trip or not. Well, are you going to be sinning by going on? I didn't want you to go to Uganda. I wanted you to stay home and watch Netflix. <laughs> you shall be punished. It's like, worst case scenario... You go overseas and, and preach the gospel to some people. Just step out, right? It's okay to try things for Jesus. We've tried things as a church that didn't work. Remember our first outreach at the library? How many people came to that? Zero. None. None people came to that. So what do we learn? All right, we ain't going to try that again. <laughs> but let's try something else, right? Take a step of faith. 
Follow the fire, follow that pillar of cloud, but do it with wisdom, do it with patience, and by testing all things, prayer, impressions on your heart, revelations from the Holy Spirit, circumstances changing, and taking steps of faith. It's fun to walk by faith and trust the Lord. That's where your life's adventure is going to come from. Chapter 10. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Make two silver trumpets. Of hammered work you shall make them, and you shall use them for summoning the congregation and for breaking camp. So again, this is all about getting ready to travel now. And when both are blown, all the congregation shall gather themselves to you at the entrance of the tent of meeting. But if they blow only one, then the chiefs, the heads of the tribes of Israel, shall gather themselves to you. When you blow an alarm, the camps that are on the east side shall set out. And when you blow an alarm the second time, the camps that are on the south side shall set out. An alarm is to be blown whenever they are to set out. But when the assembly is to be gathered together, you shall blow a long blast, but you shall not sound an alarm. And the sons of Aaron, the priests, shall blow the trumpets. The trumpets shall be to you for a perpetual statute throughout your generations. And when you go to war in your land against the adversary who oppresses you, then you shall sound an alarm with the trumpets that you may be remembered before the Lord your God, and you shall be saved from your enemies." On the day of your gladness also, and at your appointed feasts, and at the beginnings of your months, you shall blow the trumpets over your burnt offerings, and over the sacrifices of your peace offerings. They shall be a reminder of you before your God. I am the Lord your God. This is how they would break camp. They would blow silver trumpets. Josephus, who was a Jewish historian from the time of Christ, talks about the same gold, silver trumpets they used in the temple, the second temple. They were about 18 inches long. They were straight trumpets. They were not curved like the shofar, which is a ram's horn. These are, are just silver trumpets. The Arch of Titus, which is a, a victory arch that they carved with a relief into it that described the sack of Jerusalem, has a picture of them carrying away the two silver trumpets. It also has the golden lampstand, if you want to go back and, and look at that. So they've been about this big, and they were silver. A long blast was to summon everyone together. He says an alarm here, and this is usually uh, interpreted as a staccato blast. Staccato is a musical term that is like dot, 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 dot. So something rhythmic would have been an alarm. But just a long blast, that was to gather everyone together. The alarm was to announce the break of camp. If they blew one, it was for the chiefs to come. They called two, it was for everybody. And when they give one alarm, that's when the east side of the, of the camp was to break and to go. A second alarm was for the south side. The tabernacle, you'll remember, was to be in the middle of those six tribes. And then the other six would come after them. So there was really no need to have another trumpet blast at that point. They also were to blow them during times of war to celebrate the feasts and the festivals. And Paul references in 1 Corinthians 15, 52, that the rapture is going to take place at the last trumpet. What were the trumpets for? They were to call the people together or to send the people out. Two blasts of the trumpet. One reason among many why we believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. Verse 11. In the second year, in the second month, so we're, we're picking up where we left off, okay? In the second year, in the second month, on the 20th day of the month, the cloud lifted from over the tabernacle of the testimony, and the people of Israel set out by stages from the wilderness of Sinai. And the cloud settled down in the wilderness of Paran. They set out for the first time at the command of the Lord by Moses. 
The standard of the camp of the people of Judah set out first by their companies. And over their company was Nashon, the son of Amminadab. And over the tribe of Issachar was Nethanel, the son of Zuar. Over the company of the tribe of the people of Zebulun was Eliab, the son of Helon. And when the tabernacle was taken down, the sons of Gershon and the sons of Merari, who carried the tabernacle, set out. And the standard of the camp of Reuben set out by their companies. And over their company was Elizur, the son of Shedeur. And over the company of the tribe of the people of Simeon was Shalumiel, the son of Zurishadai. And over the company of the tribe of the people of Gad was Eliasaph, the son of Duel. Then the Kohathites set out, carrying the holy things, and the tabernacle was set up before their arrival. So you see that those carrying the framework and the coverings would go first. So by the time the furnishings arrived, they could take them right in. And the standard of the camp of the people of Ephraim set out by their companies. And over the company was Elishama, the son of Amihud. And over the company of the tribe of the people of Manasseh was Gamaliel, the son of Pedazor. And over the company of the tribe of the people of Benjamin was Abidan, the son of Gideoni. Then the standard of the camp of the people of Dan, acting as the rear guard of all the camps, set out by their companies, and over their company was Ahiazer, the son of Amishadai. And over the company of the tribe of the people of Asher was Pagiel, the son of Akron. Over the company of the tribe of the people of Naphtali was Ahira, the son of Anon. This was the order of the march of the people of Israel by their companies when they set out. This is a key moment in the Pentateuch. They're leaving Mount Sinai. It's been 11 months, 11 months since they left. They departed after Passover was the 14th day of the first month. It took them traditionally 50 days until they received the law. Then they had to build the tabernacle and all that that happened in between. 11 months that they've been at Mount Sinai. The cloud lifted, presumably. They blew the trumpets for the first time. And they filed out after it until they came to the wilderness of Paran. Now that kind of condenses the story. The next chapters are going to tell us what happened along the way. Wasn't a, a happy trip. But this marks an end of the first major section of the book of Numbers, the end of chapter 10. Let's keep reading verse 29. Quick little narrative here. And Moses said to Hobab, the son of Ruel, the Midianite, Moses' father-in-law, We are setting out for the place of which the Lord said, I will give it to you. Come with us and we will do good to you, for the Lord has promised good to Israel. But he said to him, I will not go. I will depart to my own land, which was Midian, and to my kindred. Moses said, Please do not leave us, for you know where we should camp in the wilderness, and you will serve as eyes for us. And if you do go with us, whatever good the Lord will do to us, the same will we do to you. This is Moses' brother-in-law, Hobab. Remember in Exodus 18, Jethro, his father-in-law, came and brought Zipporah and Gershom and Eliezer, his two sons. His wife and kids that had not come with him on the Exodus journey. His, his father-in-law had met up with them. Apparently, his brother-in-law had stayed behind. Now, Ruel, we've talked about this before, is either another name for Jethro, or as I'm inclined to think, Jethro, Jethro's father. The language is ambiguous. The, the, a father in the Bible can be like your dad or your granddad or your ancestor. Like, I'm a son of so-and-so. But anyway, Moses asks him to stay and says, help us in the wilderness. We don't know how to live this Bedouin lifestyle. This is not a lack of faith in Moses. Obviously, the, the Shekinah glory is going to lead them. But this is just good sense. He says, you can show us how to live in the desert. How are we going to set up our tents? No, no. You ever been out camping with somebody never done it before? It's kind of embarrassing, right? He says, there's going to be water over here, so let's camp over there. Angle your tents this way, because the wind is going to blow in this way. So he's asking for help, and he agrees to go with him. Verse 33. 
So they set out from the mount of the Lord for three days' journey, and the ark of the covenant of the Lord went before them three days' journey to seek out a resting place for them. And the cloud of the Lord was over them by day whenever they set out from the camp. This is either a special case that the first time they left, the ark went out front, or this is just poetic language because usually the ark would have been carried with the rest of the furnishings in the middle. And whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, he said, Return, O Lord, to the ten thousand thousands of Israel. So their first journey is three days. The ark is beside them, and the cloud was ahead of them. And Moses tells them what they used to say when they set out, when they stopped. It's a very militant declaration, right? Arise, O Lord, and scatter your enemies. So for those that are advocating that we should go back to paganism and worship the, the ancient Norse gods because they were manly gods of war, if you want a god of war, you need to worship the Lord, the one that actually scatters his enemies. And then the, when they were land, when landing, when they were camping and asking the Lord to come back, it was a prayer demonstrating their need for his presence. Day after day, they followed the cloud. And this is our final point for hearing the voice of the Lord. We talked about the basics, right? Read your Bible. Talk to godly people. We looked at some practical things to look for. But here's the final thing. You will only, ultimately, learn the voice of God through experience. The longer you walk with Jesus, the closer you will walk with Jesus. Moses and Enoch and Abraham and Elisha, these men spoke to God like friends, and they lived on the wrong side of the cross. You and me have the Holy Spirit of God who dwells within us to testify all that is of the Lord to you and me. The psalmist said in Psalm 27, Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, Seek my face. And my heart says to you, Your face, Lord, do I seek. Purpose in your heart that you are going to learn the voice of the Spirit of Jesus. That you're going to hear God and know when he says move, when he says stop, when he says go, when he says wait, when he says not yet. It's going to take time. Like any good relationship takes time. But don't squander the opportunity that's been given to you to have a relationship with Almighty God.